Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Last week we covered the six uh, regarding human relations, and then over the next few weeks we're going to cover um, the first four that deal with our relationship with God and what does that look like. Um, so just as a as a brief introduction, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. He ascended Mount Sinai. Uh, the nation of Israel was nervous. They were nervous about being in God's presence, and they were even nervous about hearing his voice, uh, actually. And so they stayed at a distance, and, and Moses was the inner, uh, inner intermediary for the nation of Israel. And it's interesting because the Ten Commandments were given in, in for most of us, I think we look at the Ten Commandments as rules, the do's and don'ts. And, uh, and that's fine, but that really is insufficient. It's not enough. It doesn't go far enough. Um, and that's my hope over the next few weeks that we'll be able to see the Ten Commandments differently for what they really are. And really, um, the Ten Commandments aren't just about the rules. It's about the values that are behind the rules. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, if you think back to our last series in the book of Galatians, we talked about this idea that the law can't save us. And we talked about the, the fact that there are 613 laws, thou shalt and thou shalt not in the Old Testament. And so when when we see Jesus say all the laws and the commandments, all the laws and the prophets hinge on these two ideas, love the Lord God with all your heart, love God really, really well, and love people really well. What he's saying is everything comes back to this idea that if, if we will uh, follow these values, then all the laws will fall into place. Um, in every house, there are some sort of house rules. And uh, they might be unspoken, maybe they're posted somewhere in your house, but there are house rules, things we do and things we don't do. And every one of those house rules has a value beneath it that, that drives it. Um, if there's no running in the house, it's not simply because you don't want your kids to show off their athletic prowess in the house, right? You're like, we don't want you showing off because dad can't run like that. That's not the rule, right? That's not why it's there. The rule of no running in the house might be related to their health. We don't want you running in the house because if you do, you're, you're gonna hurt yourself. You're gonna run into something. You're gonna, right? So there's, it's not just about the rule, it's about the value that drives the rule. And so many times, if we look at the Ten Commandments, just just a list of rules, we miss the value. Um, last week, one of the things they talked about is adultery. Um, and basically what that means is, not to be graphic, but don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse. And that's not just simply a rule. There's a value there. And God values healthy marriages and the covenant of marriage and healthy relationships. And he's saying that for the best possible marriage you can have, you need to avoid adultery. It's not just about the punishment that happens if you do, but it's about what you get if you don't, the value of a healthy marriage. Um, there, are, there are other things like murder. And it's not just about not killing someone. It's about the valuing human life the way we should. Uh, and so it's important for us to look beyond the the rules and see the values. And that's really what I want us to do is see the values at the, at the heart of what God wants for us. Because it really is what God wants for us, not what God wants from us. It's not a list of demands, but it's, it's his best practices for living and for 
being who God's called us to be. And so let me start in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And it says this, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So this is an introduction. And you would think God would need no introduction if anybody didn't need an introduction to be God. And so God says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. And just to put it in context, the people who were hearing this largely were alive in captivity in Egypt. They had been delivered. They had crossed the Red Sea. They had experienced all this. And he was telling them this. So if you look at this, you might be going, well, yeah, why would, why would he need to say that? They know that, right? But, but I'll tell you this. Sometimes they needed to be reminded of who God was and how good he was. He needed, they needed to be reminded of what he had done in their past. Now, I know we never do that. We never need to be reminded how good God is. We, we remember that all the time. We remember every good thing he's ever done for us, right? But the Israelites, those people, they needed to be reminded. They needed somebody to go, hey, don't forget. And that's what God was doing. See, he was saying, uh, hey, I'm about to give you these commandments, but I don't want you to forget who I am. Because if you just simply look at the rules, you're going to miss the whole point. So what I want you to do is remember who I am. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the God who loves you. I'm the God who rescued you from, from Egypt, I'm the one who rescued you from slavery. And so this is the foundation of, of what he's moving into. And I want you to know this. When God directs his people to do something, it is always for their benefit, not for his. God never gives us instruction that is self-serving for God. It's always for us. So when God gives us the Ten Commandments, it's for our benefit, not his. That's what he says in verse 3. You must not have any other God but me period. You must not have any other God but me. Now, that is the first commandment. And for the record, verse 4, we get into the second commandment. You're like, I thought we were going to cover one commandment. Nope. Because verse 3 and 4, commandments 1 and 2, are, have so much overlap that we're going to get into both of these today, and then we're going to finish up uh, this part next week. So commandment 1 is you must not have any other God but me, or you must have no other God before me, as some translations read. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. Verse 5 says, um, you must not bow down to worship them, or bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children the entire family is afflicted, even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So there's a lot to unpack there. We're going to get to some of this next week. But one of the parts of this second passage, second commandment that I want to walk out with you is he says in verse 5, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I don't know about you. Has anybody struggled with the idea that God is a jealous God? Have, have, has anybody ever struggled with that idea a little bit? There's three honest people in the whole church, you bunch of liars. <laughs> okay, maybe you've never thought about it before. Uh, I have struggled with that, and I'll tell you why I've struggled with that, because my uh, experience with jealousy is what frames my knowledge of this idea. So when I think of God being a jealous God, it's hard for me to reconcile that with what I've experienced with jealousy. Because uh, I've, I've got a lot of experience with jealousy, personally, but then also just viewing it and seeing it, because I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. And I would have 
teenagers sitting in my office talking to me. Pastor Mel, I don't understand. She said she'd wear my letter jacket and she was my girl and now she's not my girl and I don't know she's with this other guy. And, and what I've come to realize is the letter jacket thing isn't a thing anymore. And so if it was more modern, it'd be like, she left me on red or like, um, or, or I snapped her and she never snapped me back. Our snap streak got broken and now she's snapping with this other guy. And if you don't know what that stuff means, it's okay. I don't either. I'm just repeating what I've heard my children say. So, so basically what it is is you've got one person who says, that person is not supposed to be with them. They're supposed to be with me. They're mine, right? That's my person. It's my girlfriend, my boyfriend, whatever it might be. Um, we do the same thing as we get older. That's not their job. That's supposed to be my job. Why did they get that job? Why do they live in a house like that? They don't deserve that. Why do they get the experience like that? And what we see is jealousy, jealousy is selfishly motivated. And it's, it's often driven from insecurity. Because what happens is that teenage boy will go, well, what's wrong with me? Why, why doesn't she pick me? Why does she like me? And it drives insecurity and the selfishness and all this kind of stuff. And so you go, well, how do you reconcile this with who God is? In fact, let me read this verse to you. This is Exodus 34, 14. It takes it a step further. So they're reaffirming uh, this command, and it says, you must worship no other God, for the Lord, whose very name is jealous, is a God who's jealous about his relationship with you. <laughs> it's like a scene out of a movie where somebody goes, be careful, it's dangerous, and then somebody goes, my middle name is danger. Right? Last night, somebody texted me and said, actually, I know somebody whose middle name is Danger. I was like, oh, brother, come on, that poor kid. What are they saying, though? Oh, hey, my name is Danger. I, I got that. That is who I am, right? That's what they're saying. And so when you look at this verse, and it says, whose very name is Jealous. God's very name is Jealous. Well, how do we reconcile this? I'm glad you asked. So let me look at this word in the, the Hebrew um, for jealous. The word jealous in the Hebrew for God is kana. And when you pronounce it, the N has a longer, uh, you, you linger a little longer on the N. It's kana. And it means jealous, but it's only of God. So this is jealousy that only God has or experiences. And so when you see this word in scripture, it's only used to describe God. It's never used to describe human jealousy. So what it's saying is there's this delineation between the way God is jealous and the way we're jealous. Okay? Uh, so the, the human word for jealousy in, in the Hebrew is kana, but it's a shorter N. It's only got one N. Q-A-N-A. Kana. And it is jealousy like I just described. It's a selfishly driven jealousy. It is, why are they dating him and not me? Why are they, why did they pick that? Why did they get the job? It's driven from a selfish desire, selfish motivation. It's insecurity. It's all those things. Drama, dysfunction. Okay, it's the 13-year-old jealousies. That's, a, that's what we're talking about there. So what we see here is something very different, though. And this is what I want you to hear. I want to remind you what I said earlier. When God gives us instruction, it's always for our benefit. When he gives us a command, it's always for our good. And so what we see here is God say, yeah, I'm the Lord your God, you'll have no other God before me. And he's not saying it because he's insecure or, or because he's jealous in the way we understand it. He's jealous for us 
but he's not jealous of anybody else. So he's not going, well, why are they serving that God? And maybe I'm not good enough for them. Well, they used to love me, but now they don't love me anymore. What's wrong with me? No, he is secure. God knows who he is. He has no problem with his self-identity. When he sees us worshiping another God or giving our affection to another God, he is jealous for us because he knows our best option is him. And he is, is heartbroken over the fact that we are choosing something than his best. So it's not selfishly motivated or driven. And he is heartbroken over his children when we choose another God. When the children of Israel would choose uh, Modoc or they would choose all these different gods in the Old Testament, he was heartbroken for them. He was not some insecure teenager wondering why he couldn't get a message back. In the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel were tempted to worship Baal and Asherah and Chemosh and Dagon and Moloch and in the land of Israel there were in the land of Egypt there were 40 different deities that the Egyptians worshipped and they spent hundreds of years in Egypt so it's safe to assume they probably worshipped some of the Egyptian gods they get into the wilderness as they're led out of out of captivity in Israel and Egypt and they're led into the wilderness and there's more gods for them to choose from and they they go into the promised land before they go God says hey when you go into this land I'm giving you don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what he's saying is don't intermarry with people who have a different God because that relationship's gonna draw you away from this one true God. And, it, and I want you to hear this. It's not about the relationship. It's not about the marriage. It's about the God, that this relationship is gonna pull you from me. And this is how important this is, that I am your God. There is no other God. So for us, we look at this and we go, well, hey, I'm great. I've never once worshipped Baal or Asherah or Moloch or any other god. I'm good. We don't have these issues in America, right? Woohoo! Thank goodness. Um, when we were in Egypt, in, Egypt, in uh, India a few years ago for a mission trip, um, one of the things that was really interesting is there is literally an infinite number of, of gods in um, Indian culture in their a religious worship, and so they would just set up shrines anywhere, like in the middle of the country, like nowhere, like no buildings, no people, and there'd be like a shrine, like with a little lean-to set up on the side of the road, and people just pull off and worship there sometimes, and they'd have little idols and things like that. Uh, they'd have them in the metropolitan areas all over the place, and people just pull off and stop. In the middle of their work day, they just stop in and worship for a little bit, and we think we're exempt because we don't have that. We go, well, hey, we don't have idols that we worship. We don't have gods that we worship. And I'll tell you this, we do. And that's what makes it even more insidious is that it's subtle and it creeps into our lives and we don't even realize that we're worshiping false gods. We don't even recognize the fact that there are other gods in our lives that we're worshiping. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is just walk through a few of those gods that has, has infiltrated Western Christianity and, and talk about that because I think, I think to be honest with you, that's where we're at as a people. That's where we're at as, as a church many times. Uh, that's where we're at as a nation is that we're worshiping gods that we don't even know we're worshiping. So let me start with the first one. Number one, I think the first god that, that we worship is the god of success or achievement. We love this God. And the thing that's tricky about the God of success is we can, we can veil it 
in very ethical Christian ways. This is especially dangerous in churches where um, whether we like it or not, many times we measure success in a church by how many people show up on a weekend. And let me just tell you, as the pastor, I'm telling you, that is the wrong way to measure success of any church. It's not about how big they are, how small they are. Uh, it is about how faithful they are to do what God's called them to do. So you could be the biggest church in the world, but if you're not faithfully executing the things that God's asked you to do, you're, you're not successful. Um, and so what happens though, is we can say these things, but it's easy for pastors to start looking like attendance numbers and going, hey, we had more people, I must be successful. Or we had less people, I'm not as successful. And then what we start doing is measuring against others and go, oh, well, we, I'm better than they are because we have more people and what's happening? Well, we can say it's all about people and reaching the lost, and if we're not careful, it can become about our success. And before you know it, uh, we're, we're doing good things with the wrong motivation. We're reaching people, but we're doing it because we need our ego fed, or we need to be successful, or we need to win, or whatever it is, and that's just not the way it's supposed to be. But we can veil it because it's the church. And you can do the same thing. You can say, hey, I, I want to I be successful on my job. I, I just want to make some more money. Man, if I could get that promotion, then my life will be better. Then I'll be able to give more to the church. Then, man, if we could just get that bigger house, we could host a small group here. So we can veil it any way we want, but many times our drive is just for the bigger house or for the nicer car. Because a lot of times what we don't talk about, but the reality is um, the more successful we can be, the more affirmation we're going to get. The more, the more my self-identity is driven to be good. See, I'm, I'm good because I'm successful, and these people say I'm successful, so now everything's right, and this is an issue. One of the problems is um, that we're, we're subtly training our children to worship the God of success, too. And let me say this before we go any further. Success isn't bad. I hope you're all successful. I want you to have a successful business and marriage and, and um, health, successful relationships with your kids. I want you to win in every area of your life. I want you to. <laughs> and hopefully you'll tithe after you're successful. That'd be great. But, but at the end of the day, I want you to do great. I want you to do well. The problem isn't that you succeed. The problem is that you are succeeding and that becomes your God. So we, we teach our kids to worship success, and we don't even realize we're doing it. Um, and the ways we do this is that we will say, hey, um, yeah, we're going to go to church. Church is important. It's really valuable if we've got time. And if we don't, maybe I've got to work that day. And if I've got to work, I'm going to work. I'm going to work some extra hours because we're trying to get ahead or whatever it is. That's great. What are you teaching your kids? Um, hey, church is really important unless we got a ball game. If we got a ball game, then church is not as important. So let me just tell you, my goal is to offend everybody today. So if you're not yet offended, your time's coming. Um, church is really important unless we got a ball game today. If we got a ball game, sorry, God. Now, am I saying you can never miss church for a ball game? No. But what is the pattern we're setting? Because see, what happens many times is we'll say something like, um, 
hey, my kid is playing baseball, and so I can't just let them play baseball. Uh, I've got to give them private lessons, and they're going to work on this throughout the week, and they're going to practice, and we're going to spend lots of money on their uniforms, and we're going to spend lots of money on their private lessons, and we're going to spend lots of money on travel because we're traveling all over the place for this team and for the game. And maybe it's not baseball for you. Maybe it's hockey, or maybe it's cheer, or maybe it's dance or gymnastics or whatever it is. We've got this thing, and, and maybe you don't do this, but maybe Maybe, unintentionally, you show a little more affection when your kid goes three for four from the plate than you do when they go 0 for four from the plate. Maybe you show a little more affection whenever your kid makes straight A's than you do if they get a C. And what are you doing? You're driving home this idea that success is what we're all about. Oh, yeah, yeah, we go to church, but the God of this home is success. And if, if you want to be acceptable, if you want to be loved, you've got to be successful. Because if you're not, you're just not as valuable. And we do these things to set our kids up for success. Well, I'm trying to get them ahead. I'm trying to help them get into a better school. I'm trying to help them get a scholarship. I think they've got potential to be pro someday. No, they don't. They don't. Now, I will say... um, there are a few exceptions. In fact, let me tell you about the exceptions. The NCAA said that of all the high school athletes in any given year, 2% of them will receive a college scholarship of any kind to Division One or Two school. 2%. 2%. If you're bad at math, that's one of 50. So your kid had better be better at athletics than the 50 other kids on their team in order to get a scholarship. If you think your child's going to get a pro contract someday, let me help you with that one. Because the NCAA also says that only 2% of all college athletes get a professional contract to play a sport. 2% of 2%. Now I will say, we've got a young man who's part of our church who, who plays professional basketball overseas. So there are exceptions, but they're very, very rare. Let me help you with another number. 100%. That's the number and the percentage of people who will face God in judgment someday. We put so much time and so much energy and so much effort into success in sports and academics and all these different things to make our kids successful. But then what we do is we neglect their spiritual life. The very thing that's going to help them be a better husband or wife someday, we neglect. The very thing that's going to help them be a better employee or an employer someday, we neglect. The thing that's setting them up for success in every area of their life is being a moral, godly person, and we neglect that because we're looking at the immediate. You know, the, the, the Old Testament gods that pulled the Israelites away, they demanded sacrifices. In fact, Moloch was one of the gods I mentioned. Moloch demanded infant sacrifice. They literally had to sacrifice their babies to that god. And the gods we serve today are no different. The god of success demands a sacrifice, and many times the sacrifice is your family. Well, I'm going to work longer hours, and that's sacrificing something. Well, we're going to make sure he's in this game and playing these sports and it's sacrificing something. You are losing out on something. But I am telling you, 
God gives us more than he takes from us. Mark chapter eight, Jesus said this. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? What difference does it make if you're successful in every area and realm of your life, if you're not successful in your walk with Christ? What difference does it make? Because every area of our life that that we can experience success in, uh, athletics, academics, uh, professionally, any of that stuff, it is fleeting. Because much of that depends on your health, your strength, your, your mental capacity, and all those things go away. All those things are temporary. But your relationship with God is eternal. The worst kind of failure is succeeding at the wrong thing. My fear is that we are successful at the wrong things. And we're downplaying how successful we need to be in our relationship with God. What happens? We put success above God. Second thing is this, pleasure. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody here in our church a couple years ago now, and uh, we were talking about some things they were doing as a family, and this person said, well, you know, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And they were joking. It was tongue-in-cheek, and I laughed, and I thought it was funny. And then later I was thinking about it. I was like, holy cow, how many times do we live that way? Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Now, let me just start with myself on this one. Um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before. I, I kind of keep some of this stuff quiet, but uh, I enjoy eating uh, frozen custard from Meadows. Has anybody, maybe I've mentioned it? No? Yes? Okay. Meadows, frozen custard. I like that stuff. And there'll be times that I'll show up to Meadows and I'll be like, I'm just going to get a small. And I'll get up there and start talking and be like, you know what? Make it a large. Go ahead. Ah. What could it hurt, Right? And I can make jokes about this. I can make light about it. But the, the reality is, what I'm saying is I'm applying that principle. If, if a little's good, more is better. That's really dangerous. Because unfortunately, this, and this isn't a joke, uh, I, like a lot of people in our culture, probably have a little bit of an unhealthy relationship with food. The way I view food, the way I use it at times to... Uh, to, to nurse things or to make me feel better, whatever it is, there are things that I should be going to God for, but there's times that I use food to medicate. What am I doing? Well, I'm looking for pleasure. Well, it tastes good. It makes me feel good. And if a little's good, a lot is better. We have the same problem with alcohol in our nation. I, I don't think, personally, I don't think Drinking alcohol will send you to hell. But what I know is abuse of alcohol is dangerous. It's ungodly, and it's not good for you or your family. So what happens is somebody goes, well, it's not going to send me to hell to drink. So uh, I'll drink, and if a little's good, more's better. What's happening? Well, we're chasing a feeling. We're chasing an emotion. We're chasing something that that drink can provide that nobody else can provide. We're not trusting God for that. We're trusting the substance for that. It's one of the reasons we've got such a a dysfunctional view of sexuality in our nation. That's why we have so many people addicted to sex in our nation. So many people addicted to pornography in our nation. And I I want you to hear this with the right heart. This is not condemnation. Because statistically there are people sitting in this room 
they're dealing with a, a porn addiction right now. And I want you to know you're not in this alone. There's help for you. If you need it, we want to help you. But what happens? Well, we go, well, it's just a little. It's not that bad. And before we know it, we're, we're taking a, a counterfeit intimacy, and it's replacing a legitimate intimacy with our spouse. And it breaks marriages. It breaks relationships. What, why are we doing it? Well, it's, we're, we're chasing pleasure. That feeling, the, the, the chemical release in our brain, all that stuff, that's what you're chasing. You might be sitting here going, well, I'm good because I don't have problems with food or alcohol or sex, so I'm okay. <laughs> have you ever had this moment before where you're like, I got a little time. I'll watch a show on Netflix. 12 hours later. It is two in the morning. I watched an entire season of that show. I didn't mean to do that. Do you know what you're doing? You're chasing that feeling. If a little's good, more is better. And we're a nation, we're a culture of people chasing pleasure above all else. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, you should know this, that in the last days, uh, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They'll act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. I'm not going to spend time on this, but, I, man, this verse is so convicting. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. This should be terrifying for us as believers. God, search my heart. Help me not just be religious, but, but help me experience the power that can make me godly. God, don't let me just go to church on the weekend. Don't let me just watch the services. Don't let me just consume Christianity. But God, let it transform me. Let me experience the power that can make me godly. Because the implication is that, that people are living religiously, not because they're fake, but because they don't even know any better. They're just being religious. They think that's good enough. But it's not. That's not even part of my notes. That was bonus coverage for you. Verse 4 says this. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Some versions say lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So let me break this down for you. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive in the Greek here. So uh, lovers of pleasure means this. It's philedonos uh, is the Greek word, and it's a compound word. Two words, philos, which means friend, and hedone means pleasure. And hedone is where we get the word hedonism or hedon, which means a selfish pleasure. It's just selfishly directed and motivated. It's about what I want. So what it's saying is um, they were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They were friends of pleasure rather than Lovers of God is what it's saying. Friends of pleasure. So let me go to the next word, the lover of God. It says philatheos, and it's compound word philos, friend. We saw this one before. And theos, God. So what it's saying is friend of pleasure, friend of God. 
So here's what I want you to hear. The word rather than, it doesn't mean it's one or the other. It's Milan. It means more to a greater degree. This is what's so dangerous, is that what this verse is saying, if, if, if I can take a little bit of liberty, this is what the, the original Greek says. They are friends, now let me say it this way, they're better friends with pleasure than they are with God. It doesn't say that they're not friends with God, but it says that they're better friends with pleasure. Um, I've got two teenage daughters in my house, and... Um, I've been around a lot of teenagers, and I've had this conversation with teenagers over the years. Who's your, who's your best friend? Oh, well, it's probably so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. No, 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 no. You, you don't understand what the word best means, right? Best means best, one. So who's your best friend? No, 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 I've got four best friends. It doesn't work like that, Right? You get a best friend. And has anybody else ever had that conversation with somebody? That Am I the only one that's a stickler on the rules, I guess? Anyway, so it's like, no, you get a best friend. And I want you to know, teenage mentality does not apply to God. God does not feel like you can have four best friends. The danger here with this idea is that we can be friends with God and still be better friends with another God. And it's not that we're picking God or picking something else and rejecting God. It's that we're just saying, I'm better friends with pleasure. I'm better friends with success. Oh, yeah, God's my friend, but I mean, he's not my best friend. Well, yeah, I'm friends with God. I go to church, but I mean, I'm I'm better friends with success. Oh, no, no, I love God. He's my boy, but... I'd rather spend time with pleasure. And I want you to know this. There's this principle woven throughout Scripture that that God says, I am first. I, I will not be second. I will not be somebody's friend but not their best friend. That's not how this works. I want to be your best friend. I want to be your number one. That's why he says, you will have no other gods before me. I am number one. And if we can apply this principle, if we can understand, God is not interested in being our friend. He wants to be our best friend. He does not want to be on your list in your top five. He wants to be number one, period. It will change everything. The problem is we love pleasure. We love just a little more, a little more. Come on, no big deal. And it goes back to, it goes back to, I think, in some ways, the Declaration of Independence. I'm not going to trash America, so don't worry. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is not scientific. Uh, it's anecdotal. But one of the things I've seen in my relationships with folks, uh, we've got a number of people who are part of our church that are from other countries throughout the world. And a lot of them have come to IUP for school, and they're part of our church, and we get the opportunity to get to know these people from, from other continents, other countries. And one of the things I've seen is that they deal with suffering differently than we do. Because I'll hear some of their stories, and they are crazy and horrific. And I've decided I think they deal with suffering differently. And I think one of the problems is that this idea that, that – 
we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is kind of baked into who we are as Americans. And, and we will go, well, hey, it's my right to be pleased. It's my right to have pleasure. It's my right to have joy. It's my right to have happiness as an American. And when suffering comes our way, when bad things come our way, many times the way we look at it is little more than an interruption of our pleasure. We go, well, how do we get this out of the way so I can get back to my pleasure, back to my goodness, back to my life that I want? And when we approach suffering that way, it is counterproductive for us. And we should pursue pleasure, but just not our pleasure. As Christians, it is our responsibility to, to pursue God's pleasure. What makes God happy? What pleases God? And then that's what I want to be doing. The, the Westminster Catechism, for those that, that grew up in more traditional churches, it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if I could simplify that, I would say, man's chief end is to please God. That's what we were made for. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says that in pleasing God, we will discover our pleasure. So as we endeavor to please God, we'll actually find pleasure for ourselves instead of chasing it in all these different places in all these different ways. Last thing, real quickly, it's comfort. Oh, we love comfort. I think there are lots of issues with addiction in our nation, but I really do believe one of the biggest issues facing the church in America is our addiction to comfort. We want to be comfortable above all else. Uh, Finley Peter Dunn was a, an author and a humorist back uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he said this, Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us comfortable. He died on the cross to make us holy. In fact, if we read a passage that's one of the most famous passages in Scripture, Psalm 23, and even if you're not a believer, a follower of Jesus, you've probably heard this at a funeral. Psalm 23, 4 says, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, in other translations, the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. I want to point this out. If you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that is not very comfortable. Does anybody agree with that? Nobody is voting for that. And this verse doesn't say, you deliver me out of the valley of the shadow of death. What does it say? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You comfort me in my valley. As I sit at the table with my enemies, I'm going to have peace because you're with me. See, God never promises us to deliver us from uncomfortable situations. God's promise is that he'll be with us in the discomfort. In fact, God's best work is done when we're uncomfortable. But yet we seek to get out of our uncomfortable situations all the time because we're addicted to comfort, because we are worshiping comfort. We think if we're uncomfortable, we must be out of God's will. And I would say maybe you're exactly where God wants you to be because that's when we're most likely to hear from God. There's a big difference, I want you to understand this, between being comforted and being comfortable. God wants to comfort you. When you're dealing with affliction, when you're dealing with heartache, sorrow, God will comfort you. He has sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter, but it is not his goal for us to be comfortable. He wants to stretch us. He wants to develop us. He wants to make us uncomfortable. See, when we get comfortable, we miss out on God's best. 
Um, one of the most interesting stories in Scripture to me is the nation of Israel. They're in captivity for 400 years. They escape captivity. Moses leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they're going to go in the promised land, but they're disobedient, so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It's finally time for them to go in the promised land. And what's interesting is of the 12 tribes, two and a half tribes of Israel said, we don't want to go into the promised land. We've been working toward this. Why would you not want to go to the promised land? And they go, hey, listen, we've, we've settled on this side. There's good grazing lands. We've got herds. So this is good enough. We're going to stay here. And they don't take their possession in the promised land. They, they settle because they're comfortable. They said, we've gotten used to this. We know this. We're good. And Moses says, but this is better. And they go, nah, this is good enough. And this is the problem we get into whenever we get comfortable. We get into this good enough mentality. You know what? I know I could have an on-fire relationship with Jesus. Man, I know I could have that. I, would, I want that, but that's hard. This is good enough. I mean, I'm going to heaven, so that's fine. Man, I know my relationship with my wife could be healthier. I know we could have the marriage that I want to have. Man, that feels like a lot of work. And this is comfortable. This is good enough. Man, I would love to be out of debt. I would love to be able to, to give to missionaries and give to the church like I want to. But man, to get out of debt would be really hard. This is, this is good enough. We're fine. Man, I would love to be healthy. I would love to get healthier and be in shape. But man, going to the gym and eating right, that's hard. This is good enough. We do this over and over and over and over in our lives. And ultimately, we settle for less than God's best because we're comfortable. I was visiting with um, one of our team last night before the Saturday night service, and we were talking about um, we're talking about somebody who has not been back to church in a long time, and um, and we were just having this conversation. This person I was talking to. I mean, they were a little frustrated, and it's not that they were mad at this person. They were just frustrated because they're like, man, they're missing out. And I said, well, they're not bad. You know that, right? Like, it's not that they don't love Jesus anymore, but you know what's happened? This person said, well, what? And I said, they got comfortable, right? I mean, I'm not going to condemn anybody. We had 12 weeks where I was pre-recording our services online. We weren't having church in person. Do you know what that was like? Because we had four services on weekend before the pandemic, okay? So I went from preaching four times on a weekend to preaching once a week. Pre-recording the message, we'd show it. You would be sitting at home watching. I would be sitting at home watching. I would be in shorts and a t-shirt, sitting on the couch. Sunday morning, I'd wake up, and I'd watch it again, and I'd be in my pajamas. It was awesome. Right? I get it. And for a while, I was like, we can take our time with this. This is good. But at some point, I had to say, you know, the, the comfort isn't worth it. There's things that I'm missing because I'm comfortable. So I'd rather be uncomfortable and get the things I'm missing. And there's nothing better than standing in a room full of people and worshiping God together. And you've got to say that because you're here, right? But let's be honest. I didn't worship like I do here when I was at home. Do you know why? Because I don't want to hear myself sing. Right? I want the music loud enough and the people around me loud enough where I can go, ah, I could just sing and nobody can hear me. 
That's what I want, and I couldn't do that at home. I want to be able to hug people in the lobby after church. I miss that. But at the end of the day, some people have stayed away because of legitimate health concerns. Some people stayed away just because they got comfortable. And if you're watching online and you're one of those people who just got comfortable, come home. I miss you. There's no condemnation. I just want to give you a hug if you want. If you don't want a hug, that's fine. We'll do a whatever. But man, I miss you. I want relationship. I miss you. Some of you sitting here in the room, you're like, whew, good thing we came to church today. You're not off the hook. Because just like there are people who stayed home because they were comfortable. A lot of people came back to church just like you. Man, it's great to be back. It's good to be here. But let me tell you something. Every department of our church has significantly less people on their team than we did before the, the COVID happened. And some of those people have come back to church. They're just not serving on their teams. The same thing is true. Because I'll be honest with you. It's pretty comfortable coming to church five minutes after church starts, coming in and sitting down, rather than 30 minutes before church starts and holding a door for somebody. It's pretty comfortable dropping your kids off at kids' church and walking in, sitting down, and consuming church rather than getting here 30 minutes early and serving somebody else's kids. It's pretty comfortable walking in and drinking the coffee in the lobby and bringing it into your seat all nice and warm. Ooh, it's good. Rather than get here 30 minutes early and help make the coffee for other people. It's comfortable. It's comfortable to come to church and and maybe you're a little bit unknown and you can kind of sneak in and sneak out. There's no expectations. It's comfortable. I get it. But God's got something more for you than that. It's, It's time to get uncomfortable. It's time to step up. It's time to serve. It's time to step into your role. It's time to step into your gifting. That's what God wants for you. God doesn't want you to be comfortable. He definitely doesn't want you to serve the God of comfort. So embrace the discomfort. Embrace the fact that maybe God is making you uncomfortable. Maybe even in this message, he's making you uncomfortable. Maybe he's making you uncomfortable because he wants you to unlearn something you've learned. Maybe he wants you to learn a new pattern for living or a new pattern for thinking rather than the one we've adopted. Maybe he's trying to stretch you into a new area of increased effectiveness in your life, in your walk with him. Maybe he's trying to show you an ungodly characteristic in your heart that you've adopted and a mindset maybe, a thought process that's not glorifying to him that he wants to transform, that he wants to eradicate. Maybe he just simply wants you to see the other people in need around you. Maybe he's just trying to push you to become someone capable of much greater responsibility in the kingdom. But he wants you to be uncomfortable. This last week, as I was putting this message together and praying about it, I felt prompted to, uh, to share this prayer with you. And I don't read very many prayers, but this one has been one that stuck with me for a few years, and I just felt like I should share it with you today. And this is John Wesley's covenant prayer. I want to read it to you, but I want you to receive it as if this is your prayer. He says this, I'm no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. 
Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I've made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. I love this prayer. Because what Wesley's saying is, I'm not God. God, you are. And I'm fully surrendered to whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Whatever you're calling me to, I'm going to be faithful to do it. Whatever you're asking me to do, I'm going to do it. And that's my hope for you, that you'll pray a prayer like this, a dangerous prayer, that we throw aside our comfort, we throw aside our success, we throw aside our pleasure and say, God, whatever you want is what I want. God, I don't want to have any other God before you. I don't want to just be friends. I want you to be my best friend. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your son. Thank you that, Lord, we can experience your goodness and your grace and your spirit. Lord, I pray that you administer in our hearts in this place. Help us to see where uh, we have fallen short. Help us to see where maybe we've drifted from you as our very best friend. And I pray that we would let you change those things in us. So God, correct us. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would be motivated not just by the rules, but by the values behind those rules. So God, I pray that you would uh, move in us, draw us to you. And I pray if there are people here who have drifted from you as their best friend or as their one true God, Lord, let today be the day we recommit ourselves to you, that we surrender ourselves to your Lordship and just invite you to be Yahweh, invite you to be God, invite you to be Lord of all. So God, have your way with us over these next few moments. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. If you're here and you'd say to me, Mel, I recognize today, man, some other gods have, have crept in. And I love God, but he's not my best friend. He's a God for me, and I realize I don't need him to be a God. I need him to be the God. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe you realize that you've never really been walking with Christ. You were religious, but you never really experienced the power to make you godly. And today you say, okay, I recognize that. I need to... I need to let God do the work in me he wants to do. So whether whether you're here and you've never really surrendered your life to Christ or maybe you're here today and you recognize there are some gods in your life that need to be torn down, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. So if you would, all over this place, with head bowed and eyes closed, if you say to me, Mel, I want to be included in this final prayer, uh, I know that, that I'm not where I need to be. I recognize there's some things that are not right. I just want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you want to recommit your life to Christ.
maybe you want to surrender your life for the very first time, whatever the case is, if you say, I want to be included in that, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it? You can put it right back down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of hands. A lot of hands all over the room. Yeah. Thank you up in the balcony. Thank you on my left. Thank you in the center section. Yeah. Thank you back in the back over there. Praise God. I've told you before, we're going to pray together, and the, the, the words are not magic words. But when we pray to God, we're not just saying words. We have to mean it from our heart. And so I want you to pray this prayer with me. I want you to repeat this prayer with me. I want you to pray it out loud, but I want you to mean it from the center of who you are. So let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving Jesus to pay for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I will have no other gods but you. You will have my primary affection for life. You will be my very best friend. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving Jesus for me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Let's see if we got a round of applause this morning. Listen, if you prayed that prayer with us today, whether it's the first time or maybe it was a rededication for you, um, I want you to know we're celebrating with you. We're excited for you. And I believe this is going to be a watershed moment that you're going to be able to measure the rest of your life from this moment and go, hey, my life was different after that. So we want to help you take the next step. There's a couple things you can do. Um, if you'd like, you can fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you and just take it to our information center, give it to them. They're going to help you take the next step, uh, get you connected to some opportunities and some resources. If you're watching online or you're here in the room and you'd like to, you can simply text the word Summit PA to the number 94000. And when you do that, we're going to respond back to you and we're going to help you take the next step. So please take advantage of that. Uh, let us get you connected. We started uh, our starting point. Uh, group today at nine during our 9 a.m. worship experience. It's for new believers and people that are returning to their faith. And so that would be a great opportunity. It's a four-week group that you can get connected with anytime during our 9 a.m. worship experience. So we want to help you with opportunities like that. Here's what we're going to do now. I'm going to pray a final prayer over you guys as we're dismissed. And then as you are leaving, our prayer team is going to be here at the front of this room, and they're available for prayer. If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave today, I would encourage you to do so. So let me pray for you while our prayer team joins me up here. Lord, thank you so much for giving us so much. Thank you for your son who you gave to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, we acknowledge today that we are nothing without you, that, that every other God we could serve is a dead, lifeless God. And so today we commit to you fully and wholly. I pray as we leave here today, we would walk out of here as vessels of your glory, of your goodness, of your grace, and that the world around us would see that and they would marvel and they'd be drawn not to us, but to you. So God, I pray that you'd get the glory for who we are and what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you and give you the praise in advance for what you're gonna do through us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.